This is an exciting day for me. I get to introduce you to a friend. So Grace Point values highly story, right? We all have a story. The thing about stories is we've all been successful and we've all failed. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to own our story. And then if we're lucky, we get to share our story with one another. I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine today, and I've known him for 10 years. And it's a beautiful story of hope and tragedy and redemption. And I'm going to ask you all to honor his story and welcome Jeff Bohannon. Good morning. I'm going to move down here with you guys, if that's okay. Happy sunny St. Patrick's Day to you guys. I uh, see a lot of you are decked out in your green. Scaredy cats, right? Want to get pinched? <clears throat> I'm just going to pinch you anyway, because that's, that's how I roll. Um, oh, man, this day, i, I got to tell you, <clears throat> I'm so excited to be here with you guys. This is a, it's a big moment for me. I've been around Grace Point since the very beginning of the church, 2003, when we started about 16 years ago. And um, I actually was on staff here uh, for about three years, um, way back in the day, and I, I was one of the music coordinators here. But I've kind of come and gone, and I've never seen, I can say to you today, I've never experienced um, any church like this one, the way it is now, the way it is today, <clears throat> and these faces that I get to see each week. I know a lot of you <clears throat> don't know me very well, and I've only gotten to meet a few of you, um, but... Uh, there's just an energy here that I, I haven't felt ever. And I've been in church all my life, like probably a lot of you. Um, gotten some bad ideas about church, like probably a lot of you. Um, and we're going to talk about some of that today. But <clears throat> when Stan and I first started talking about m maybe me doing this um, and sharing with you a few weeks ago, I was immediately so excited to tell you guys um, my story, to share my story with you. Um, because our stories are so fundamental, it's really all we have to give each other. Um, you know, even more than our wealth or even our wisdom. Um, the arc of our experience, um, what we've been through, what has happened to us, you know, the trouble that we've heaped up on ourselves and the trouble that has been uh, dealt to us by others. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the specifics are. When we share these things with each other, we, um, we grow in each other. And so I... I was immediately excited when I talked to Stan, and that excitement lasted about four seconds, and then I, it turned to fear. Like, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to get up here, and I'm going to do this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this with you guys? Because anytime we lay our souls bare for each other, um, it's a scary thing. Right? Any, anybody ever experienced that? Um, I would guess so. Uh, so but that, that fear eventually pretty quickly subsided, and I, and, I, and I knew that this was the place for this. This is, this is the place um, where we can, we can share ourselves with each other, and, and it's a safe environment for us. And I'm so glad that that's what Grace Point has become, and that's what we are today. Um, so I think a really good place for us to start is with my longtime friendship with our senior pastor, Stan. Uh, known Stan for going on 20 years, probably 19 years. First time I ever met him, he was an associate pastor at a big church in Brentwood, and I uh, had recently come out of some trouble that we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, and my mother was attending this church, and she wanted me to go and 
um, and see this pastor that had really just kind of captivated her. And so I went and, you know, there he was. He was about 32 at the time. I think I was 24. And there he was up there behind the pulpit and neat suit, hair slicked back and nice big leather Bible. And he looked pretty much like any pastor I'd ever seen. Uh, but he didn't sound much like any pastor I'd ever heard. And uh, that was a time in my life when I wasn't so open, you know, to, what, uh, to whatever was out there. I had kind of abandoned the idea of God. And um, <clears throat> it took me back almost immediately that day that I first saw him preaching to my childhood. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Uh, we didn't just go to church, man. We went to, we went to church we, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night Bible study. Um, I don't know if you, it, maybe some people in here have been around Nashville long enough to remember a program called the Grand Old Gospel on Friday nights. Steve, do you remember, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, we, so, yeah, five times a week, guys, I was, I was in church. And when you're in church that much, uh, and when you're that small, and I'm talking about from birth, um, it's a huge part of who you are. I mean, <clears throat> Um, I think our spiritual side is uh, the most fundamental side to our humanity uh, anyway. I don't think any of us would be here if we didn't believe in something, if we weren't searching for that center of us that's connected to something greater than we are. And, but as a child, um, it, it, was, it was tough to navigate some of the things that I was hearing in the evangelical realm, right, in the fundamental Christian uh, faith. And there was at our church when I was a little kid, a very dynamic pastor, a very flamboyant and boisterous and loud, loud. That's got to be loud in the Pentecostal church. Got to get that point across. And he, you know, he would wave that Bible around. And when you're six years old, a charismatic guy like that is, is like Superman to you, you know? And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I knew one thing I wanted to do was, 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 was do what he was doing. I wanted to get up there, and I wanted to wave my Bible around, and I wanted to, you know, yell at people, put the fear of, put the fear of God into people. <clears throat> and no joke, I mean, to that point, um, I think I was about six or seven, and my grandfather, who was a woodworker, built a pulpit. And I'm talking a big oak box with a cross on it about this big right on the front and we put that thing in um uh we had a basement with a playroom for me and my sister and and, and he put that thing in, in our in our basement and I remember I would get so excited for Sundays because every Sunday my dad would buy the tape from the cassette tape from the previous Sunday and it would have this the sermon on it and I would take that thing home and I would pop it in the uh, stereo and I would I would memorize I would, especially the loud parts and, and, I would, and I would get up there behind that giant pulpit, and I would peed on it, and I would, you know, preach to my imaginary congregation. I just knew that that's what I would do someday. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's ironic that that's, uh, that that's how my experience of God started in my life, because um, it wasn't very long after that um, infatuation began that I experienced something at, at church that I have never forgotten. Um, I was probably about seven, maybe, and our pastor had given another one of those patented hellfire and brimstone messages, and 
This one was particularly uh, uh, energetic, let's just say. And, uh, you know, we're going to hell. You don't repent, you know, your sin's on your head. If you die with those sins on your head, you know, there's a place for you and it's hot. <laughs> and I guess to anybody, that's, 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 that's pretty eye-opening, um, jarring, uh, damaging to say the least. But to a seven-year-old, it's just downright scary. And I remember uh, at the end of his message, he gave this poignant, passionate altar call, and there's people flooding down the aisles, and they've got tears, and they're draping themselves over the altar. And I'm sitting there with my head in my hands, and I'm frozen in fear, and I can't move. And the vivid memory that I have is of me praying out loud, and my little legs dangling off the pew, God, please don't let me burn. Please don't let me burn. Because I knew I was fundamentally bad, right? That's what we're taught. There's no good in you. There's no, you're separated from God, and it's, it's God's whim, whimsy. If he feels like saving you, he will, but you better be good. <clears throat> and I knew. I knew at seven. I couldn't, couldn't do it. So, um, yeah, the vivid memory I have is just tears pouring down my hands and my arms and the carpet was a was a was a, a rich blue color and my tears were hitting a spot turning it a dark blue well i'll tell you something about fear uh it's a really bad motivator and so you'll either go one of two ways usually you'll try to satisfy it and you'll do anything that you have to do to to uh to live up to to it or you'll go the other direction, and you'll say, well, what's the point? I might as well try to find some peace and happiness while I'm here or while I can, because there's no point anyway, right? So, <clears throat> you know, that was my experience of church growing up, and when I found Stan, um, <clears throat> that first day that I ever saw him, he was talking about some God I had never heard anything about. He was talking about this God who, I mean, who, who groaned with humanity as we groaned, who, who wept as we wept, who felt our sorrow and felt our pain. And, um, and I, I, I didn't know if he was right because that's not what I'd heard. And it surely wasn't what I experienced, but... The grace that he was talking about was revolutionary. It was, you know, I wanted to let it in so bad, but I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was right. But I knew I had to meet this guy. So a couple days after that first Sunday that I ever saw him, I um, called the church and spoke with his secretary and asked if I could set up a meeting. And she said, let me check the books. You're in luck. He's got an opening in about six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little bit hard to get a hold of, but uh, the meeting happened eventually, and you know he he had asked me to meet him at a Mexican restaurant in Brentwood, which is what I did. And when I got there, um, he was actually his his parents were visiting in town from Arkansas, um, his mom and dad, and Stan Jr. was there, and Stan Jr. was maybe two years old. Um, I had no idea in that first meeting 
that these people would become like family to me, very much like family, especially Stan Jr. He's like a nephew to me. Um, but that first day, I had already decided, I'm, I'm laying all the cards out on the table. I'm going to see if this guy's for real. And if he'll listen to what I have to tell him, um, I'd like to know what he has to say. So we sat <clears throat> at a table off in the corner so we could have some privacy. And I just kind of laid it out there, man. I said, you know, I come from a good home, great parents who love me, great family. Uh, grew up in the Pentecostal church. That was our first connection because he had two. You've probably, if you've heard him speak, you've heard him say that. Uh, and uh, told him uh, about, you know, my experience there and, and, and uh, maybe some of the bad ideas that I got about God from my upbringing. I'm not, I don't know if I got into that or not, but um, then I told him, uh, you know, that I was a good kid growing up. I never got into any trouble. I always had uh, the fear of God, <laughs> the fear of God in me. And um, I respected my, my parents. I would never do anything to hurt them intentionally. And um, by all intents and purposes and by all accounts, I had a great childhood and upbringing. And we shared a lot of the same things. He came from a great family as well and um, had grown up in the same kind of church, uh, had been taught the exact same doctrine, had been uh, exposed to the exact same theology. And I, um, I felt very comfortable right from the beginning with him. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about how I told him I'd played baseball my whole life and played second base my whole life and how I was a big Braves fan and he was a big Cardinals fan and I said, that's okay, I forgive you. And he, he said, um, or I told him uh, I got in, involved in music as a kid and uh, had become a, a pretty okay musician. And, um, and in fact, by the time I was in high school, I had got, I had started singing and training classically and I had won a scholarship to a really good university for music in Florida, and um, how by the time I went away to school, uh, and I don't know exactly when it began, but a, a, a very um, critical, fundamental fear just kind of took root right, right about here in the middle of my chest, and it was there every day, and it was like this sense of impending doom, and I didn't know what it was. It was just an anxiety that I couldn't get rid of, and I, um, I didn't know if maybe it was, maybe I'm homesick. I'm away from home, and I'm at school now, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grow up, and I'm trying to adult a little bit, and uh, maybe that's what it is, but I think more than anything, I just kind of pushed it away as much as I could. Um, about that time, my parents, who had always been so stable and always been there, they separated, and um, it was tough. Uh, for me, I think I was about a sophomore in college then, and um, I, I have thought about what I'm getting ready to tell you so many times, and, and when, when things happen in your life that kind of don't make sense, I, you, I think you fight. It's natural to, to try to make sense of it, um, and so I can look at these things that maybe led up to what I'm about to tell you, and maybe I can make sense of it. Um, I know now that what happened to me and the choices that I made later had very much to do with that little boy in that pew, those tears dripping on the carpet that day. I didn't know that then. I had forgotten all about that. But I knew in my spirit that God wasn't a nice God. 
I knew God at that time as a really mean father figure, which is unfortunate because my own father, my dad, was the greatest guy in the world, had his problems like anybody else, but he was always there for me. It was such, a, such an unfortunate dichotomy. So I was in school, I was about maybe a month shy of my ninth, no, my 20th birthday. And I came home one night to the house that I shared with two roommates and uh, they were having a party and that wasn't anything unusual. But what was unusual that day was um, I walk into the kitchen and my roommates are sitting around with some other people that I didn't really know very well. And on the table was a pile of what I knew was drugs, turned out to be cocaine. And um, I told, told Stan that first day that we met at that restaurant in Brentwood, I told him, I think I told him that, you know, I didn't give it much thought. I just kind of dove right in and, and, and tried it. But I don't think that's exactly what happened. Uh, thought about it a lot, and I think there was a moment, maybe a few seconds, where something kind of washed over me and said, this is a bad idea. But, you know, when you're 20, you're indestructible, you know. Nothing bad can happen to you when you're 20. And um, I'll tell you, it was so fast. It grabbed a hold of me so quick that even now I think about it and it's like almost instantaneous. I'm sure that it took a little while for me to get actually addicted, but it was, for me, something that just, it's like I'd found something, something that fixed something broken. You know, of course, that wasn't what, what it was, but it felt that way. You know, if you've ever experienced any kind of a battle with any kind of addiction, and there are so many kinds, substance is just one thing. But if you've ever battled anything like that, then you know it's killing something in you. That it's, it's hurting. And from that res- respect, it makes a lot of sense why we w- would do that to ourselves. But for me, um, again, it was awful. And I'll tell you something about addiction. It's, you know, <clears throat> I've heard people say, ah, well, you know, I've tried that, and ah, it wasn't for me. And I look at those people, and I go, what the, what is wrong with you? Like, it's a, how could you even, uh, you know, I don't understand that. But then, I, you know, I've, I've, I've studied a lot about addiction, and I know now that uh, all of us are different. All of our brains are different. We react different to different things, and, uh, you know, whether it's food or whether it's, you know, alcohol, whatever it is, you know. We all have our stuff, and so uh, for me, it just, it just grabbed me. And so <clears throat> for about the next, I'll say year, I was sliding down this slope like it was coated in grease toward some horrible end that I couldn't have possibly known yet what it would be. And within that year, I'd lost my scholarship at school. I uh, dropped out. I was forced to. Uh, grades were uh, going down the tubes. I didn't have the money without my scholarship to afford to go. So I went home, and within the next six or eight months, um, it all came to be revealed that I was addicted hopelessly to this drug. Uh, well, my, I was living in Florida then. My parents had moved back to Nashville. And they found out about this. I was able to hide it for all that, that time initially, but they found out about it. And they, when they found out, they got in the car and drove 13 hours through the night 
to come and deal with their son, who they loved. And they came and they got me, and they were going home, and you're going to rehab, and that's what we're going to do, and we're going to deal with it this way. So that is what happened. And I did go into the rehab, and <clears throat> I didn't know it would be the first of, I think, seven times that I'd been. Um, but it didn't work because I wasn't ready for it. And I would suffer these cravings, and I would suffer these, uh, these desires that I couldn't get a grip on, that I couldn't get a hold of. And so um, I relapsed. I was here in Nashville, and I I'd actually relapsed a couple of times. And when I would relapse, I would, I would disappear. I'd be gone for a couple days. Well, then I had the relapse of all relapses. Uh, this was 1998. And um, I remember that I went out to eat with some friends one night and we were downtown and just like, I don't know, a thought in my head, I'm going to get up and go and I'm going to go get me some drugs and I'm going to, yeah, and that's what I did and I was gone that time for five days and when the, uh, the smoke cleared and the dust settled, I found myself in a motel room um, with the guy who'd been dealing drugs to me for those five days. Um, and I owed him much more money than I could pay. Well, I didn't have any money. And um, he finally decided it was time to pay up, so he reached in his waistband and he pulled out a pistol, which I'm pretty sure <clears throat> was a 45. I, I, I can say that I'm pretty sure that it was a 45 because I got a good look at it. He stuck it right up against my left eye. And what's funny to me now, or maybe I should say ironic, because it wasn't funny, uh, is that I don't remember being afraid at all. I remember thinking, hmm, it really makes no difference if you shoot me or if you don't. Um, but at that same moment, I was also thinking, yeah, it would you know, it'd be nice to get high again. And I don't know what made me think of it, but <clears throat> I had seen a television show some weeks previous to this. Um, it was a true crime documentary, and they had highlighted this segment on some people in California who were robbing banks uh, by just writing a note. And I got this brilliant idea that, oh, that's what I'll, that's what I'll do. Because on the TV show, they were getting away with it. So I cavalierly but very gently pushed this gun out of my face and I stood up from my chair and I walked over to the window and I looked out and just so happened that down the hill was a bank right there. And I said, well, I can get you your money, but you're going to have to let me, uh, you know, to let me go run an errand. I think is how I put it. He did. And I guess I could have run away. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know that it matters. But what I did was I walked into the bank. <clears throat> I walked up to the desk where they have the slips, and I took a slip, and I wrote out a note. I said, give me stacks of $20 bills. Nobody gets shot. Thank you. I, wrote, I actually wrote thank you on the note. It's a, it's a matter of public record, if you don't believe me. Um, I waited in line at the bank, actually waited in line. It was a busy day, and I 
got up to the teller and she was scared to death, but she handed me the money and I didn't, it worked. I didn't even, I didn't have a bag. I didn't know what to do with the money. I just started stuffing it in my pocket. I walked out the door and I walked up to the room, paid the dealer, bought more drugs. They caught me later that day and long story short, they sentenced me to two and a half years federal prison, which is about the least amount of time that you can get for such a crime. I'd never been in trouble. I'd never had any kind of um, record at all or felony at all. Or, you know, my parents were beyond devastated. They were beside themselves. It was the culmination of a long journey that none of us had any idea was going to get a whole lot longer. Um, but I went away and I came back. I got a little bit of good time for good behavior, and I, uh, I got home in about two years, maybe a little less. And so I told Stan all of this that I just told you that day uh, that we first met, sitting at that Mexican restaurant. And immediately it kind of bonded us. I mean, it was just something about <clears throat> the common ground that we already shared, coupled with my story, coupled with where he was in his life, and he would soon leave that church, and he would soon start this, this beautiful place. And life's a journey, right? Life is not neat. Life is wonderfully messy. The arc of a life is not a straight trajectory. It's a parabola of ups and downs and twists and turns. And if we're lucky, we get to live it with each other, right? If we're, if we're brave enough to share who we are, Regardless of the circumstances, I know that some of what I'm telling you today, it's, a, it's kind of, it's got sensational moments, right? And there are things that you couldn't possibly relate to because you haven't experienced them. But there are things that you've experienced that I couldn't begin to imagine what it did to you. But really, I couldn't imagine what it did for you because you lived through it, right? I have to tell you. And I'll have to close soon because <clears throat> we don't have enough time to really cover so much of what happened later. But I, yeah, I, to, to, to not go into so many details, the next 10 years wore that parabola, that twisty, turny roller coaster. There were some good moments. There were a lot of bad moments. I was not able to kick my habit. I told you, many rehabs, many, many chances. It's not that I didn't want it. It's that it just... It was such a long road. And Grace Point was always there for me. There were so many great people um, that were there for me. Steve Wire is a men my mentor. And I'm so grateful in many ways. If it wasn't for Steve, I wouldn't be here. Um, but unfortunately, about 10 years after the first time, I would do exactly the same thing again. And I would go away to prison again, this time for six years. That second time, I was sitting in the jail cell before I got sentenced, and I was, I didn't know if they'd ever let me out. I didn't know if I'd ever get to come home again. And I remember laying in this cell, I was by myself in there, six by 11 cinder block hole, iron bunk. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm bang my head against this brick wall hard enough, maybe 
it would create an aneurysm and it would kill me and all of this would be over. I just wanted to die. Um, I disappointed so many people. I had disappointed an entire church. I had disappointed my friends. I had disappointed my, my pastor. I had disappointed, disappointed God, right? Except I hated God. Oh, I was so mad at God. And eventually they sentenced me, and it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it was a long time. And this time they sent me to some prisons where a lot of bad things happened, very violent environment. I saw people beaten I'm to death right in front of me uh, more than one time. But um, I guess a couple of years into that sentence, uh, you know, my friends refused to let me go quietly. I just wanted to retreat. You know, when you've messed up that bad, when you've ruined your whole life and you think you've ruined everybody else's too and you just don't feel like you can be loved, you don't want to be loved. You don't want anybody risking getting close to you again because you don't know what you'll do. But they refused to let me go. I remember, and this I'll close with this, but I remember that Steve <clears throat> had told me before I went away and got in trouble the second time, he told me, you need to read a book by a man uh, named Richard Rohr. It's called Everything Belongs. Now, he told me this about three years before I got into trouble for the second time. And I remember I was sitting in a cell one night, and we were on a lockdown for some reason, for a riot, I believe it was. And we were on this lockdown for more than a month. That was pretty common. And on the lockdown, you don't come out of the cell. You're there. You're in the box. You have books, if you're lucky to keep you occupied. I had run out of books, and I wrote my mother a letter, and I asked her, Mom, could you please send me some books? I can't think of what to tell you to send, except there's one book I want you to send me, and it's called Everything Belongs. How I remembered that, I couldn't even tell you. I'd never read the book. He only told me once, and I didn't just remember the name of the book. I remembered the name of the guy who wrote it. Well, let me tell you something. The book arrived. I read it about five times in four days, and I've read it 30 times since then. And if you ever get a chance to read it, if you haven't read it, you should check it out. But we don't, I don't have time to get into why exactly it was so important to me at that time, but the, the basic reason is because it spoke of God in ways I'd only ever heard Stan speak about God, and I'd stopped listening to Stan for years because I still had this fundamental fear. It just was so deep. And that fear had turned to anger, and it really had turned to hatred of God, and I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to hear about it. Well, um, I remember sitting there in that cell reading that book one day, and I've never really heard an audible voice of God, but I heard a something, a thought come into my head, and it said, you are so loved, you can't even stand it. Can you? And at first I didn't know what that meant, but then I got to thinking about it and I, I realized, no, that's true. That's exactly true. I don't let people love me. I don't let people in. I don't let, I don't let them in because I don't think I'm worthy of it. And I don't think I'm worthy of it because I don't think God loves me. And memories started flooding back of my experience of that little boy in that church 
crying his eyes out because he thought God hated him. He thought the God that he had always been told would, that loved him would let him burn for eternity. And the two things don't match, do they? So that began a long journey toward um, a much healthier, much more gratifying, much, well, a real experience of God. That's why I'm here today. That's why I think you're here today. Um, I am nowhere near there. I don't know if we ever get there. Actually, that's one thing Roar says. If we don't, you don't ever get to keep it when you, get, when you catch that glimpse of God. But if you're lucky, uh, grace works, and you'll get, you'll get to catch it more often if you're just present, if you're just there, if you're just open. And I'm open. Today I'm open. And I'm thrilled that I can sit here and I can tell you I haven't used a drug in, it's been 10 years this year. Um, I'm thrilled that I can tell you that um, my life, there's no way I could begin to tell you how great my life is, you guys. And there's no way that I can tell you exactly how it happened other than I just started to be open and I just started to be honest and I just started to let people in. And I just started to share myself with people. So the last thing I want to tell you is I got to come home about four years ago, 2015, and I was so scared. Um, what in the world would be waiting for me? Would I even be able to get a job? Who would want to marry me? How do you tell that story on a date? Well, I did tell that story on a date. Uh, about four months after I got home, um, I was on Facebook. Facebook was brand new to me. And I had made a few friends. And one of the friends that I met was friends with a girl that I went to high school with back in Florida 25 years ago. And you know how it pops up on your Facebook, people you may know. Well, she popped up, and I said, oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about her in 20 years. I wonder what she's up to. So, of course, I Facebook stalked her. And she was living in Franklin, like right down the street. You have to know how weird this is because we grew up in Florida together. We went to the same high school in Florida. I'm from here, so I have ties here, but I didn't know that she had any ties to Tennessee. So before I knew what I was doing, I sent her a Facebook message and very stalkery thing to do. And I, I said, do you remember me? We went to the same high school together. We sang together. We did plays together. We acted together. Do you remember me? And she said, yeah, hi, no, not really. And I, uh, I was heartbroken, but it didn't last long. Turns out she did remember me. She just needed a little uh, nudging. But anyway, I want you to meet. Well, before I say that, I, we went out on our first date, which really kind of, you know, I postured as, you know, well, let's get together and let's have coffee or lunch and let's catch up. And, and we did that. And at that very first meeting, I don't know what it was, something in my spirit, if you want to call it that, God in her infinite wisdom telling me, you need to just lay the cards on the table. And I told her the same story that I just told you guys. Only I told her a lot more of it. And she, uh, I mean, it's a heck of a thing to tell somebody on a first date. But she, hmm, okay. Well, let me think about that. <laughs> My wife, Jennifer, stand up. 
And I'm going I'm to tell you what the definition of grace is. Grace is when you find somebody who is more for you than you are for yourself. And if you don't have that, then you don't need it. I see God. I see her beloved self through this wonderful woman who loves me, not because of anything that I can do or in spite of anything that I have done, but because she knows who I am. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. We're going to sing a song for you in a minute uh, during the offering. Um, part of that song says, it's my favorite song by Rascal Flatts. It's called I'm Moving On. Part of that song says, I'm moving on. At last I can see life has been patiently waiting for me. And I, it also says that you're not alone and you're not. I don't know what everybody, everybody in here is dealing with something in their life. And I don't know what it is. It's probably not as severe as what I just told you, but maybe it is. But I just want you to know that you're not alone. And this place is so great. I'm so glad to see you here. Just embrace this place. And I uh, love you, and thank you for listening to my story. Yeah. 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 Yeah.